Before we get started on this episode, we did want to mention that this work we're covering today deals extensively with the topic of suicide, so we'll be discussing that at length throughout. Just something to keep in mind as you choose whether or not to proceed. Okay, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. And I'm Cameron Lalana. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week we're joined once again by a friend of the podcast, Dr. Caitlin Shirley, to give us some insight to Dostoevsky's The Meek One, sometimes translated as A Gentle Creature. Dr. Caitlin Shirley runs the Dostoevsky or Doesn't She social media accounts on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr, as well as a Discord server where she hosts a Dostoevsky book club, which you should definitely check out. She has a PhD in comparative literature with research focuses on Russian, French, and German 18th and 19th century literature. Her dissertation is entitled Dostoevsky and the Rousseau Trap, Considerations on the Man of Nature and Truth, and on his proposed reformation. Dr. Shirley, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm definitely excited to be here. This is one of my favorite stories, as you know, intense as it is. And, um, you know, love memes, love Dostoevsky, love talking about it. <laughs> what is your book club currently reading? Currently, we are in the middle of hot demon summer okay. and reading <laughs> demons. We've uh, we've been through that for a little while. I think for the fall, we're going to be focusing on some short stories. So if anyone wants to drop in just for a little while, as opposed to a longer commitment, check out the discord server link on the Dostoevsky or doesn't she.com website. Cool. We'll have one in our description in our podcast description as well. Awesome. And before we get into the episode, we'd also like to extend a special thank you to Lucy, our newest patron. If you'd like to see us host more guests, head on over to patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. For as little as $3 a month, you can have access to notes from each episode, exclusive bonus episodes, and polls to help us choose what we're reading next. If you're not interested in Patreon but still want to help us out, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website tipsytolstoy.com. Thanks for those updates, Cameron. Of course. And before we get into the reading today, uh, Caitlin, what are you drinking? Irish coffee. Nice. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good solid choice for this one. Yes. Something to wake you up. (laughs) 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 Matt, what about you? Uh, uh, Well, you see, I am drinking uh, a new guilty pleasure, perhaps, of mine which is hibiscus flavored sparkling water <laughs> mixed with um uh, strawberry infused vodka that i had left over uh, mm. from when my mom was visiting shout yeah. out my mom sounds awesome <laughs> uh good good combination <laughs> that sounds that's a very i don't know and maybe russian combination is the wrong word i feel like i've just seen that combination of vodka and in, in berries in some cookbook somewhere for infused vodkas <laughs> Infused vodkas are good. It's the way to go. What what are you drinking? And what was it preceded by? Uh, So I am drinking, uh, again, thank you so much to Darren McVeigh who provided us with these beers. I'm drinking La Chayette, which I now stands for Owl, which makes sense given the owl on the label, which is a dark Mm -hmm. saison, a nice spicy little number, which is good for today. And it's especially good for the fact that I am a, um, it was my birthday a couple days ago, so I was celebrating yesterday, so I am very hungover, and I was also driving, I spent about three hours on the road to, to before we got here, 
due to an overturned trailer. So I also drank like 400 milligrams of caffeine. So a little bit hungover, very over caffeinated. And now I'm drinking an excellent beer. So we're kind of riding high on all three of those things. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> well, I, I can't wait to get into it. <laughs> yes. Well, let's get into the story proper before we spend too long discussing the human condition as much as Dostoevsky might like that. <laughs> Similar to our series on Anna Karenina, we're actually going to be getting to the context as we discuss the story itself. So we're going to be starting with the summary, which I'll keep brief because the story itself is perhaps less interesting than going over. Well, the story is interesting, but summarizing the story is less interesting than discussing its features. So we open up on this line. Bit of a mystery for the reader. Oh, while she is still here, it is still all right. I go up and look at her every minute, but tomorrow they'll take her away. And how shall I be left alone? So we open up at a bit of a mystery as a man is sitting in a room staring at someone, uh, you might guess based on the references to coffins and laying on a table, that she is no longer alive. And then we follow along with this man's recollections as he thinks upon this woman, as we later find out his wife, uh, sitting, lying really, on the table. These two first met when this man, who is working as a pawnbroker, uh, sees a young girl, 15 or 16, coming into a shop every week to pawn somewhat useless items. She's always bringing in things that seem sentimental but aren't of terrible value. He gives her some money anyway. He's kind of curious, and he happens to notice that she seems to be leaving lots of uh, ads in papers for governesses trying to get hired out. Based on this, he follows up by bribing a servant in the house in which she lives and finds out that this uh, young woman, or actually rather really a child, is the daughter of the two dead parents and is currently living with her aunts who are planning to marry her out to a shopkeep nearby who has um, beaten two wives to death, which is not great. Not ideal. Not ideal. Definitely not. No. Yeah. The, no, the aunts don't want her in the house. I don't know if we can make that clearer. Uh, so the, sh the pawnbroker decides he's going to go give her an offer of marriage. He goes, he delivers it to her at her front gate after having the servant bring her out. And she thinks about it. Um, it's not, not a great choice. Either a man who is based on the history likely to kill her or this somewhat old, somewhat creepy shopkeep who has been investigating her life secretly. After considering it, she decides I will marry this man. We follow through the next couple of chapters as we discover their early married life, uh, their conflicts, uh, the kind of initial period where he imagines there's some sort of love as he tries to lay down uh, a sense of his control in this situation. And that, that continues, and they have highs and lows as they seem to get along at some points and other points have major breaks, uh, especially <laughs> leading up to the point when she begins to um, act on her own, which he's not super big on because he's not really big on his... A child wife having agency, as you might imagine, uh, as she starts lending without him being there, giving uh, better prices than he would give her, or giving better uh, pawns deals than he would. And this argumentation leads up to her one night um, taking his gun and holding it up to his head. He wakes up during this process, but decides that um, he's not going to do anything. If she shoots him, she shoots him, and, and that's it. She does not shoot him, and the next morning he gives her another bed, and without talking about it, they seem to understand that something has changed in their relationship. And she begins to act more, I, won't, I don't want to say in line with what he wants, but less as she was before. And then he, he comes to a point when he begins to, uh, I hesitate to use the phrase, fall in love with her, he becomes infatuated with her and decides that he's going to change everything and he's going to sell his shop, uh, which he earned by, after 
falling into financial ruin when he uh, was kicked out of the military for not defending an officer's honor uh, based on an aunt dying and leaving him money. He's going to sell all that. We're gonna, they're going to move somewhere nicer. They're going to start all over. It's going to be wonderful. And he's very clearly scaring her with his sudden kind of mania about this. And one day when he heads out to go do some tasks around town, he come home, comes home to find that she has thrown herself out the window and, and, and died. And that's where we wrap up the tale as he sits in his house with um, the, the meek one, Krotkaya, laying on the table, kind of wondering what is he going to do next. Yep. Not very upbeat, no. for sure. No. Characteristic of uh, our boy Dostoevsky. Yeah, very much so. So you said this is one of your, your favorite uh, short stories. Can I ask what, what draws you to this? Confession, as usual, mm-hmm. I'm kind of, you know, as I talked about last time when we discussed Notes from Underground, I'm pretty much obsessed with confession in Dostoevsky, and this text is definitely a confession of sorts. He's trying to, um, you know, the first chapter opens up, who, I, who was I and who was she? And this question of identity, this question of self is imperative in confession. That's basically what you're what you're saying when and he uses the word ispavyed when he talks about confession near to the end, which is a confession of self. It's not like a statement Pakazanya, like Raskolnikov gives at the end of Crime and Punishment before the epilogue at the police station. It's a spiritual confession, it's a identity confession. And we have throughout this story a very interesting um narrative about who he is and how he understood her Mm. and as readers we uh we are able to see through the gaps in the narrative and through the way he misunderstands and even admits to misunderstanding or mis poorly explaining things that he doesn't actually know who she was he might know about himself a little bit it seems like he does but i think he just inherently misunderstands her throughout the entire story throughout their entire relationship i don't think he ever really understood no matter how much he tried to or thought he did there is always exactly there's always something like he he thinks oh um she must be cheating on me oh she must be so grateful for example in that instance when she's choosing between him and the grocer he think he's so surprised because he's like, hey, I'm not going to beat you to death. Why the hell are you taking so long? And for her, it's kind of a, well, should I die this way or should I tr- die another way? Should my death be slow or should it be quick? And I think that's, he misunderstands quite frankly that she does not have much hope. She lives with these two abusive aunts and I think the world is a very difficult place for her and we see... There's a a lot of different similarities to other texts, but notably in the adolescent, Versilov uh, has uh, reaches out to a woman who's putting ads in the paper to be a governess, and she's very poor, and she and her mother are extremely poor, and he gives her some money and says he'll help her. Well, ultimately, she decides this was an insult, and she goes to return the money to him, and then shortly thereafter commits suicide. And so this notion of benefactors for poor young women is present throughout Dostoevsky's work. I mean, we see that with Svetragailov, with Luzhin in um, Crime and Punishment. We see that with the arranged marriage and the idiot between Nastasia and Ganya, although that doesn't go through. Um, 
in the insulted and humiliated, we have some of this uh, notions. All right, so actually, that's more about pawnbrokers, which is another theme that we have throughout this. But the this independence and free spirit that uh, the gentle creature kind of has is misunderstood and not identified by our narrator. And for him, he's I think he's definitely going for that domination. For him, love is either domination or submission. And in that moment when their relationship kind of changes and she's like singing and she puts the revolver to his head and stuff, I think he misunderstands that completely. Like their relationship at that point had become kind of like they're equals. They don't like each other, but they're tolerating each other. He thinks of it as a different in a different angle. He's like, oh, I have proven to her forever that I'm not afraid because uh, she saw me wake up with a gun to my head and go back to sleep. But actually, it's not quite that. That in that moment, she's like, well, I could have killed you, but I didn't. I also made a choice in that moment, and you forget that. So I think she actually in that moment, and until he embarrasses her with these, this confession of love, this overwhelming affection, she's, she's feeling better about herself. She's like, okay, I can, I, maybe I won't have to die, ultimately. Maybe I will be able to exist in this world. And ultimately, when he overwhelms her with these declarations of love and we're going to France and all that stuff, she realizes that he still wants to dominate her. He still wants her submission. Her independence is at issue and she she won't accept it. Yeah. And this um, the story actually comes from a, a suicide that Dostoevsky read about in a paper. And if you see the October 70, 1876 edition of The Diary of a Writer, um, he talks about two different suicides. First, the suicide of Herzen's daughter, who wrote a really intense suicide note. She wrote, I am undertaking a long journey. If I should not succeed, let people gather to celebrate my resurrection with a bottle of Clico. If I should succeed, I ask that I be interred only after I am altogether dead, since it is very disagreeable to awaken a coffin in the earth. It is not chic. And the way she killed herself was soaking a piece of cotton in chloroform, tying it around her face and lying down on the bed. And thus she died. Um, and Dostoevsky's like in this nasty and vulgar, chic way of thinking, there sounds a protest. Perhaps indignation, anger, but against what? Simply vulgar persons destroy themselves by suicide owing to a material, visible, external cause, whereas by the tone of the note, one may judge that no such cause could have existed in her case. And he talks about how she was born abroad to Russian emigre parents, um, and how she, and this idea of uh, the break from the soil is also very present in his work. She wasn't properly Russian. She had that European influence that ultimately and Dostoevsky often leads to suicide. And then after that, he comp- he talks about the suicide of a young seamstress who jumped out of a window with- holding an icon. And um, it's really, I mean, it's all very disturbing, but he says this was a timid and humble suicide. Here, apparently, there was no grumbling or reproach. Simply, it became impossible to live. God does not wish it. And she died having said her prayers. And I don't believe that she had actually left a note. It doesn't actually say whether or not she had left a note, but I imagine he would have quoted it had she. And he's like, how different are these two deaths? And which of these two souls had suffered more on earth if such an idle question is becoming impermissible? And I think that's that's interesting because we often, you know, these days have the suffering Olympics, like who suffered more, which suffering is worse. But I think in asking that question, they both suffered, but for different reasons. One of them had been cut off 
from her native homeland and the other had been in that native homeland unable to survive. And that female victim in Dostoevsky's work often is representative of Russia itself. So Russia committing suicide in this way is speaking to the larger political situation that's going on. Mm. And he also uh, goes a little bit out. um, He talks a little bit about a term coarseness, which is like uh, getting really into material, uh, material gains and wanting to. uh, It's just kind of like a nasty little vulgar term. And um, he talks about how that is so negative the and we see that throughout his work in the adolescent crime and punishment the idiot with ganya who wants to become quote-unquote king of the jews and the adolescent ross he wants to become a rothschild crime and punishment aliona ivanovna takes advantage of everybody who's just so poor that they're unable to do anything with their things except pawn them for pennies with her and if you're trying to dominate the world with material possessions you're still breaking from that mother Russia, from that Pravoslavnia, like that, um, that orthodox, that religious faith that Dostoevsky is so, so intent on with that concept of subordinist. Right. So, yeah, I think there's just a lot going on. And I'm really interested in the way that um, he talks, that he addresses his reader as well. It's very reminiscent of The Underground Man. Because he kind of anticipates what the responses might be. But it's very unclear, unlike in Notes from Underground, what, like who he might be talking to. Why is he writing this down? And um, like at the underground man's like, oh, if I write it down, maybe I'll be rid of it. But he ultimately at the end, he's like, what what am I going to do after they take her away? Who am I going to be? And it's a question of like, is he able to dominate anymore? Like who like what is he going to be? And as you said before, he is a pawnbroker, but he took on this marriage. He took on this woman, this young girl, actually for the very purpose of dominating her mm-hmm. to be able to mold somebody to be what he wanted. We can, and he just had this idea of who she was that was just totally, totally opposite to who she was. You can think about Pyotr Verhovinsky and demons who makes, who has an idea of who someone is and sticks to that. No matter what contradictory evidence might present itself, our narrator here kind of in the same way has an idea of who the gentle creature is. And even in the title of this text, a gentle creature, I don't think she's a gentle creature. Not really. She's got more independence, more spirit than that. We can see that when she laughs at the um, army comrade or the guy from the different regiment and that she's not cheating on him, that which might be a little more bookish, a little more predictable. But she's just finding out about her husband and ultimately has more power over even that officer. So yeah, my thoughts are a little disjointed, but um, I think it's just fascinating. And it's so short also. Yeah. And unlike so much of his work, you know? (laughs) I feel like it's short but deep. Like there's a lot of stuff going on. And because, like you said, because it's taking place more or less in his head and you're really getting his only his perspective he goes really into depth on certain things like in the beginning when he's he's testing her to see if she truly is this meek or gentle creature will she just accept his insults as he kind of thinks of them i mean he spends so long on some parts of it and then kind of 
skips through other parts, but it's just, yeah, it's fascinating from the standpoint of looking at the narrator, I think. Yes. I mean, in uh, like the second page, she says, gentlemen, I'm far from being a literary man and you will see that, but no matter, (laughs) I'll tell it as I understand it myself. The horror of it for me is that I understand it all. And yet it seems that he does not. Mm-hmm. He, he acts like he totally gets the whole situation, the whole experience. But again, as I've said, I do not think that he does. And if he's telling it as he understands it, we're really not getting the complete picture. Yeah, I think it would be a, a grave mistake to accept everything as fact from the narrator, uh, especially here. Yeah, and especially, as you said, the way that he goes into depth on certain things and glosses over others. I mean, he's probably glossing over the stuff that's a little more embarrassing. For example, mm-hmm. when he's like, we were quarreling, he's like, but there actually were no quarrels. Like, we didn't actually yell at each other. I imagine that they probably did. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't <laughs> think that was like a silent, passive aggressive, like, oh, I'm just not talking to you right now. I bet they fought verbally and he doesn't want to admit that yeah well even when she there's a couple moments when her personality kind of comes through to your point earlier that although she's always referred to as as the gentle one or the meek one there are there are moments where she is clearly asserting herself but even when that happens in the text and we get these rare moments of honesty it's the blows are softened and one of the early interactions they have which really fascinates me is when she's coming to pawn her parents equal to him and he offers Mm -hmm. her more rubles than it's worth and she's kind of offended at that and he begins to tell her, you know, I've been straights, worse straights than yours. I understand it. You know, I'm just trying to help you out. And then she says something to the effect of, you're avenging yourself in the world. Yes. She interrupted with a rather sarcastic mockery. But it doesn't end there, that sentence. That does assert herself. It continues on to say in the sentence, which, however, was to a great extent innocent. That is, it was general, because certainly at that time, she did not distinguish me from others. So she said that, so that she said it almost without malice. That's... If you can read this story, you can tell that's not what's happening here. But even when she's asserting herself, he's justifying what's happening here. That this is, you know, she didn't really know me yet. So she was saying something that, yes, certainly this applies to other vulgar men act talking like this, but that doesn't apply to me. I'm different. We had a connection there, despite that very apparently not being the case. Yeah, definitely. And you can think about that in terms of Lisa and the underground man when she's like, come on, just you're not going to be my hero. Like, I know that. Stop. Why are you even still here? Why are you even talking to me? Mm-hmm. Like, this is stupid. And the underground man can't really help but take his revenge on her. His revenge against the world is taken on her, similarly to this moment with the icon. And he, and she knows that. She sees it. Just like Lisa's like, you're rather bookish. Like, this is all out of a novel. And so, too, is this guy. He's He's predictable. She knows who he is. She's met his kind before. But he doesn't want to admit that, of course. He thinks he's a little original. And he talks about that. He's like, oh, the important thing is to be original. And women can never be original. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, ironically, the original one in this story is the gentle one. Yeah, it, it is interesting. To, to both of your points, the first time through before I'd really thought about this, what I was coming away from in, in the overall theme to me was kind of the sometimes the inability to know the people in our lives, the limitations that we, we put on ourselves and others. But after going through and thinking about it, as, as we pointed out many times, that's really not the case. What's really happening here is, to some degree, an inability to understand oneself um, in that the, the pawnbroker here is, is not able to genuinely reflect on, on who he is and how he interacts with the world. He's always justifying himself. He's a sort of, he's a sort of hero for what he does. He's, he's a pawnbroker, which is looked down upon, and he was kicked out of the military, uh, but he is, that makes him better than the rest in that he, he is, in a vague way, 
a sort of hero for what he does. He thinks upon as himself as a good person, as a somewhat heroic person. He's doing good things. He's, you know, helping this young girl out by isolating her from a family and marrying her and then trying to dominate her being exactly what he wants. And as you go through this, you really I guess like the great challenge is to not get too wrapped up in in him and because he's not likable, but you can follow his thoughts. I think it's interesting and it's impossible not to have empathy for someone who's at least seemingly spilling their heart out to you. But of course, he's spilling out the version of himself that he wants to be true to the reader. And it's kind of the I don't know if this was intended, but it's the quest for the reader here really to almost have to take a step back and understand who he is as a person through his lens, but not accepting everything for what it is. And still having to almost this is almost like a mystery story, having to figure out what's really happening here and figuring out the limitations between this man and his world based only on his own limitations of his self-conception. Definitely. When you have a confession, you know, it's really only from your perspective. And ultimately, this is who I am. I did it, whichever it is. There's going to be a distortion because you do not know all of the consequences of how you've behaved, of what you've said. You also can't really know yourself as as well as you might think you do. I mean, you know, know thyself is kind of the hardest thing we can do. And it we're constantly becoming, we're not always the same as we were the day before. How do you encapsulate all of that in words? And in Dostoevsky, often the narrative voice becomes present in moments of silence or in gaps in the narrative where we, where the narrator isn't talking and the reader is filling in, oh, this guy is full of shit or whatever it is. <laughs> right. And even with regard to their wedding, he's like, I wanted to have a wedding a la Anglaise like with just two witnesses and nothing, and she wouldn't have it. I had to visit her aunts and treat them with respect as though they were relations from whom I was taking her. Well, they are relations, literally, not as though they were relations. And he had to give all the respect, and he had to... I even made the creatures, he calls them, a present of a hundred rubles each and promised them more, though I did not tell my wife about it so that I didn't make her feel humiliated by the lowness of her surroundings. She knows where she comes from. She knows that she is not treated well. And ultimately, she's making a choice in marriage, like, which kind of fate am I choosing? Is the world going to be possible for me to live in? And for her, ultimately, it does not, it is not possible for her. Yeah. And interestingly, perhaps some of the, the moments in which she's deciding that, that is to our, uh, our discussion of how the, the narrator fundamentally misunderstands her. As you mentioned before, towards the end of the story, we talk a little bit about her singing. And that's something that the narrator only experiences when she thinks the narrator is out of the house. And the narrator turns to Lucaria, the servant, um, who, who came with the, the meek one and asks her, does she sing often? And the and Lucaria says, yeah, she does whenever you're not here, which to many people might be a devastating self-realization. However, to the narrator, he takes that as a positive sign as of the turn and of her kind of coming around to his way of thinking about things. But of course, this immediately precedes her suicide. Yes, because as he thinks she's coming around to his way of thinking, he goes into this overwhelming declaration of love and we're going to make it all better, blah, 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 blah. But that's not, again, as you've said, that's not who he actually is. It's this version of himself that he'd like to present to her. But that's not how he would, he would never follow through on that. And we as readers have seen what he's capable of. And it's not that kind of love. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that he, um, he got kicked out of the army or left the army with his regiment because he didn't 
do have a duel with that guy who'd like insulted his regiment or whatever. It was like, oh, you insulted my group. Now I have to fight. And he didn't. But then when she's talking to the officer from the regiment, he says, for a whole hour, I was present at a duel between a noble lofty woman and a worldly corrupt dense man with a crawling soul. And you can almost see two metaphors, really. One, she's not a coward like him. She was like, yeah, I'll fight you. And two, that's their marriage. That he's, He is a worldly, corrupt, dense man with a crawling soul. And she is a noble and lofty woman. She has a lot more in her and a lot more going on than anyone gives her credit for. And all of his misogynist ravings about, oh, women aren't original. Women, women, women. They're so lame. It's just he refuses to admit and acknowledge that she, she is more original than him. Mm-hmm. I mean, committing suicide with an icon is even more original than he's ever been, which is messed up to say, but it's kind of, kind of true. Yeah. The, I just, I think the duel is interesting because he leaves the army because he doesn't want to fight a duel, but then he's in a marriage, which is essentially a years long duel. And it's basically one mind game after the next, but as we're talking about before i'm not even sure that they're playing the same game i think he's playing against himself which makes it so fascinating to read uh but i guess the probably the clearest depiction of this is when she's holding the gun to his head and he wakes up at those few seconds where he where they're looking at each other as she has the gun to his head that i mean that was just one of the most fascinating scenes i've ever read Oh, yeah. And he thinks that's a moment of domination. For her, I think it's a moment of, okay, I could have killed you, but I didn't. I showed you mercy. And for him, he's like, oh, I won forever. I've conquered her for the rest of her life. And it's like, no, bro. Like, she Mm -hmm. literally had the opportunity to kill you and didn't because, you know, you know where she would have ended up in prison doing hard labor. But alternatively, she understood i think in that moment like yeah the revolver isn't going anywhere and i could pick it up again another night that there's a threat mm-hmm. lingering after that and which he is unaware of <laughs> comically he he's well she still has the gun to his head he's closing his eyes and thinking about how I, he's established as you've said establishing dominance by not acting although it clearly could and he's imagining that he's won this victory over her you know <laughs> when she's holding a gun to his head. I guess in many spaces in the book, you kind of are drawn into his understanding, but it, it's hard it, It's hard to not be, I guess, cut off from his understanding in that moment when she's got a gun to his head and he's closing his eyes and thinking he's I'm about to win, basically, when she still has the gun to his head. And the very fact of how ridiculous it is for him to think that lays bare the, the kind of paucity of his thinking uh, of how narrowly it's it's upon himself. And the fact that we don't have any of her perspective whatsoever is really it's apparent in this moment because of how ridiculous his approach to this situation is in many ways that most other situations don't lay as bare, I think. Yeah, it would be so interesting to get any of her perspective that isn't filtered through our narrator, of course. Yeah. Like, what could she have been thinking in that moment? I, w- I mean, it's similar to how we never get really get into char- a lot of his female characters' heads. Like, we just see them filtered through the male protagonists or main characters like Nastasia Filipovna, Sonia, etc. And here with the gentle creature, it's always just so, I always think like, God, I wish he could write women better. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe that's part of the point. Maybe he's, maybe he's saying like these, we don't actually know Russia. We don't actually know 
these women mm. that we are constantly dominating, constantly oppressing and constantly ruining, constantly forcing into these situations where which one suffered more? Who knows? But they both suffered. That's the only thing we know in reference to those two suicides in the diary of a writer. That question that he asks. I feel like you don't even get her name in the whole nope. story. I mean, I, I think I don't know how you could accept him as an all knowing narrator when we don't even get a name. Yeah, it's it's yeah, exactly. We get a name in Notes from Underground, even though we don't get his name. We get Lisa's name. We do not get her name. He I mean, his respect for women is he calls them creatures. They're not even people. And we get Lucaria's name, which is interesting, but that's the only one. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that, but that is interesting that you get the maid's name, but not his wife. Well, Mm -hmm. it it is interesting that for the most part, Lucaria is just kind of present and he takes that as a given. Um, But what's interesting to me is that there's kind of like a side story there that is told between lines after um, the meek one's suicide. She says she's going to leave, which he kind of lets stand there. But at another point, I wish I had marked this. He says that, well, oh, he says, I will not let Lucaria go now for anything. She knows all about it. She has been here all the winter. She will tell me everything. So now his, uh, maybe you could say the desire to to dominate has shifted from uh, the meek one to Lucaria now, who up to this point has been a given. She's got a name. She's just there. But now she knows something about him that no one else knows. She knows private things about him. Now this this desire to dominate is, and to not let her go is overwhelming. She, as he says, she knows all about it, but also she will tell me about it as if he didn't understand these things that he was present for. Um, and it's interesting that he he's now kind of putting his hooks into into the next woman in his life to try to understand his his own experiences. Most definitely. And then I wonder... Like, what are your thoughts maybe on her illness when she gets sick and he goes through all of this trouble? You know, he's paying the doctor all this money. He's got a nurse coming. He's taking such good care of her. And then I think in that moment, he's kind of like, oh, I'm her caregiver. Oh, another kind of domination. Like, oh, she'll only live because of me. And it's ironic because in the end she dies because of him. Yeah, I mean, I think that that understanding is exactly right in that he his, his possessiveness is overwhelmingly on display here. And it takes the form of apparent empathy, like I care so much that I will go through all of these hoops to, to, to save her. But to the same degree, what he's kind of doing is he will go to the nth degree necessary in order that outside forces cannot disrupt what he sees as his. Yes. He himself, he could do violence against her, although he said mag- quite magnanimously does not but outside forces can't do that that's something he tries to control yes definitely and then he he talks about you know after she held a gun to his head that he bought her her own bed and a screen and he's like oh i had totally forgiven her completely but you know I felt that she was so conquered, humiliated, crushed. I almost pitied her. And the thought of our inequality pleased me. But he didn't really. She wasn't. I think for her, it was the sense of now we're equals. I could kill you. You could kill me. Fine. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, oh, we're so I'm so above her at this point. And it's like, you are not seeing clearly, buddy. No, he thinks it as like some sort of loss for her that he he thinks though this is the first time we've slept in a different bed since our marriage as if this is some kind of loss for her uh, 
that now that she has her own <laughs> space that she can just hang out in like that's this is she really lost that duel where she held a gun to his head and then got her own space that <laughs> yeah exactly she didn't want to be in his bed she didn't want to be be with him and and she's rewarded for trying to kill him that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny even though she has no well she's the narrator attempts to deny her any agency through this. The very fact that we have no insight to her personality uh, opens up so much interesting speculation to the suggestion of who she is and that she's got maybe even better than, well, maybe Dostoevsky could write, based on his usual tendencies, could write a depth of character like that. But her just just seeing her actions and not being privy to her thoughts A to Z opens up such a world of thought into what what must be going into um, a, a developing mind as it's asserting itself in this world, which is really interesting to kind of think upon. And the invitation to understand, which our narrator is so self, <laughs> self-obsessed that, of course, that would never occur to him to even try to interpret her beyond as she relates to himself as, as an independent being who's coming to their own sort in, in a way kind of coming of age in a very hard way. Oh, yeah. I think we as readers probably forget at a certain point. She's 16. She's not even 16 when the story starts. She's 15 and nine months. And, you know, if you think about the mind of such an adolescent, I mean, it's as you said, it's still developing. And then there's this moment in um, I forget which chapter it is where he says, let us talk. And then where's an ellipses? You know, ellipses. Tell me something. I muttered something stupid. And he's asking a little bit for her. Mm-hmm. He's, he wants to, he's asking, who are you? Just say anything. Like, I, I'm lost here. And in that moment, it's almost like she is this one in charge. And she looks at him with like, so you, you still expect love? Love? Like, what, what could you want? And she jumps up, but he's holding her forcibly. And then he says, I fully understood my despair. But I al- also, there's this ecstasy in his head, and he kissed her feet and all of this stuff. And she's like, oh, my God, this is so friggin' weird. <laughs> like, I do not know how to respond to this. I thought we had a mutual understanding. We do not like each other. We certainly do not love each other. You've never treated me with love. You've treated me as, like, I'm a dog in your corner. And... She's just so shocked and she's like, oh my God, I'm never, I'm never going to have the kind of situation that I could survive. I can't pretend to be in love with this horrible person. And now he's expecting that from me. Yeah. And then there's that whole like five minutes thing where he's like, oh, I, I, if only I'd gotten there five minutes before. It's like, dude, I don't think that would have changed anything. She would have found another opportunity. He believes that if he had time, just just been five minutes earlier, she looked him in the eyes and found a reason not to jump rather than in a more dramatic story. Perhaps he arrives home, she sees him and thinks, yeah, definitely this is the time or he's going to stop me. <laughs> yep. And he just, he thinks that there's some way he could have fixed it, some way he could have stopped it. But just as there's no way he could have been the man that he promised her he'd be, there was no way he could have stopped this. Mm-hmm. Since we're on this moment, Matt, you mentioned earlier you wanted to talk about the econ and and her suicide. And I was kind of curious about what was on your mind about that. Got a lot on my mind, Cameron. Thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think it's probably, well, I, there are a lot of interesting moments in the story, but this is clearly one of 
the more interesting ones. Uh, I have this quote from this article by Katya Jordan called The Meek One and Her Icon, which I think kind of describes what is happening at this point. So I I will quote it because I think it's it's interesting, curious to hear what the reactions are to this. This part of the article says, when she, the meek one, steps off the window, pressing the icon to her chest, the meek one doesn't simply leave the confines of the pawnbroker's apartment, but she thrusts herself into the presence of the mother of God. Unlike other suicides in Dostoevsky's work, the meek one's goal, if she is at all cognizant of one, is not to destroy her flesh, but to follow her mistress, the Virgin Mary, out of the stifling environment of the pawnbroker's apartment and into the realm where the virgin dwells. The meek one kills her own body, but not her spirit. I cannot generalize to talk about all suicides in Dostoevsky because that is a giant topic uh, that, <laughs> that I can't that I can't uh, come down with an opinion on. But I, I do think it's it's interesting the dichotomy of the the physical versus the spiritual because that's a pretty big one for this whole story. Because I don't really think for the narrator it's about physical domination. I really think it's about some sort of spiritual domination and her last act of rebellion is what i would probably consider it is to not give him that yeah and that's why i think it's fascinating oh for sure and it's yeah it's an icon of the madonna and she's not as he says in the diary of the writer about the seamstress who killed herself it became impossible to live and quote god does not wish it like like it wasn't a pro like it wasn't a sin like she she could not live in this world it could it had not been created in a way that she could live. And also what you had said about um, the physical domination, you know, she chose between the two at the in the marriage proposal. There was one who would beat her to death, probably quickly, and the other would be dominating her, trying to dominate her spiritually, and she chose what she chose, and she refused to give it to him, though. She refused that spiritual domination. Yeah, it's like an interesting almost... Um, I, I don't know if, if anybody else while reading this was mildly in some parts reminded of like a cinderella story hmm. slightly some elements of it and i feel like if you are say not used to dostoevsky perhaps or if you are just a a hopeful naive youth maybe such as a 15 year old person about to get married you might think like hey you know maybe life will be okay got some bad options right now but you know one day something uh will happen and i'll be able to get out of this uh, and you know find my find my whoever uh, that'll make this all okay. But that's, you know, that's not really what Dostoevsky gives you at all. Yeah, it's kind of a fucked up version of that. Like, what if Cinderella went yeah. totally weirdly, <laughs> horribly wrong? Yeah. What if the prince was a fucking pawnbroker <laughs> who is the worst yeah. at everything? What if the prince started just trying to hurt you in the end it reminds me of this french song called cinderella where the prince cheats on her with snow white and takes her kids and then she becomes a junkie it's just like sorry about it. it's just like so random and but like if cinderella went totally totally awry like you'd get a story like this yeah and even after her death to some degree, there's some catalyst there for some change in the narrator's, narrator's thinking, but it's not, he's still who he is. He, he, at some point, begins to think, you know, did you despise me? But yeah, she obviously did. <laughs> but that's not the first thing in that paragraph. The first thing in that paragraph is, did, it's awfully interesting to know, did she respect me or not? 
And then he begins to wonder about mm. the dis- whether or not she despised him. But that's his first question. Did she respect me? Which obviously, no. <laughs> she obviously did despise him and did not respect him. But even when she's dead, even when there is nothing left for her to say to him, he that's the first thing that consumes him. Did she have any respect for me? Yeah, he's like, was I, did I actually dominate her? Did I actually have anything over her at any point in this life? Yeah, he says, uh, let her, let her despise me all her life. Even, only let her be living. Which sounds epithetic, but to the same degree, he, <laughs> he doesn't care about her feelings. He just wants her presence, right? He, 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 he can take hatred. And maybe that's some evolution of character, but that's still like that... Like when she was sick and he went through all those hoops to make sure that she came out okay, it, it's still like a sort of care that kind of comes out of his possessiveness more than anything else. Yes. Before we move on from the death, uh, the, the death stuff, uh, I found this one line that, uh, Kaylin, you mentioned, is it a sin or is it not a sin? Which is obviously the giant moral and theological gray area of the conclusion. I don't think you can necessarily say for yourself or, you know, on, on behalf of the, the Orthodox Christianity, uh, on behalf of Orthodox Christianity, but I think you can see where Dostoevsky comes down if I am not misinterpreting this. Uh, but when he's describing how she died and how she looks in the coffin, he says that nothing was crushed in her fall, not a bone was broken, just a, a handful of blood and I just think it's interesting because usually from, if I'm recalling correctly, if you look throughout like saints' lives uh, writings, usually when saints die in like the kind of, if you're looking at like history from like 10th century and whatnot, I believe they usually repose peacefully. Uh, sort of like they recognize it as their, this is their time. And, it, you know, it's, it's not a horrible, gruesome death mm-hmm. usually. Uh, and in the same way, Dostoevsky grants her mm. a similar death. And so I think he comes down on on that uncertain side of that moral gray area, shall I say. Well, and even right before she does it, um, the maid says she seemed to be smiling, Mm -hmm. standing, thinking, and smiling. And she she looks at her, turned softly, and went out wondering to herself, and then she hears the window opened. And uh, the gentle creature hears, makes a movement as if to turn back to her, but instead of turning back, took a step forward. And flung herself out the window, pressing the icon to her bosom. And it remi- it is actually interesting because the narrator notes that if all those people had not been there, um, it might have been uh, blamed on Nukeria that she may have pushed her out the window. And that actually reminded me of right before in the October 76 um, Diary of a Writer, there's a stepmother who did push her stepdaughter out of the window and... Dostoevsky says in this case, like he's like talking about the judicial reforms and how jurors are often acquitting the wrong people in compassionate acquittals. And he's like, in this case, this was the one where it should have happened because I don't think she actually even pushed her out the window. Mm -hmm. Just a little aside. Yeah, interesting. And he says at the end of chapter um, three in part two, he says, wild wild delusion monstrous impossible about the handful of blood like how do you get a handful of blood also but this wildness is often characteristic of women characters in dostoevsky it's that's the russian in them they're wild 
Sonia has a wild look on her face when Raskolnikov is about to confess. Um, Arkady's mother is characterized as wild, Nastasya Filipovna. There's this wildness to Russian women that Dostoevsky focuses on a lot. And I think our narrator in this moment understands that that was her rebellion. Mm. And speaking of the you know morality of suicides in this um, instance, I am reminded of Zasima, who says, I think you should pray for suicides. Christ will not be angered by love. <laughs> and at a certain point in this text, the um, narrator says, love each other. Who said that? Who said that? And it's like, Jesus said that, you fucking idiot. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and, but he, his love is not real. Mm-hmm. He doesn't love her like Jesus was saying to love. And not, or nor like Zosima was saying to love. And in this meditation over her dead body, he does not, he does not understand her and he cannot truly love her without that understanding. Yeah. And he makes the suicide about him. He's like, I could have been in control. I was only five minutes too late. It's like, no, man, you weren't. <laughs> And he even thinks maybe I'll just keep her body here, you know, and yeah. just leave it on the table. It kind of reminds me of when Rogozhin and Mishkin are keeping vigil over Nastasia Filipovna's body a little bit. And they can't really, they like want to keep her, but they're like, oh, the smell's going to start soon. But the window's down and ultimately the police come in and take everybody and Mishkin can't say anything. He's totally delirious and idiot. Hmm. And this idea of like keeping vigil over the body of your victim does come back mm-hmm. yeah and and speaking of kind of the idea of keeping vigil over the body of your victim in the final paragraph there's kind of a fine point of irony i don't know exactly how to describe it. i don't know if it was intended as such but he, he says oh blind force oh nature men are alone on earth that is what is dreadful is there a living man in the country cried the russian hero i cry the same though i am not a hero and no one answers my cry to the very end her suicide in his mind has left him alone now he is doesn't know what to do with himself. He is alone in this world in which he has kind of rejected everyone else. When, of course, the the irony here is that the true character who was alone was the meek one. She had parents who presumably cared for her who are now dead, two aunts who did not care for her, and a husband who is in every sense predatory. And she was the one who was truly alone in this world. And her death has caused, still in this man who cannot look beyond himself, this sense that it's it's me. I am, you know, I'm not heroic anymore. I guess this is development, but I have been truly left alone by the one person who could have understood me. But of course, she did understand him more than he knew. Oh, yeah. And he, I mean, he does say, he's like, couldn't we have come to understand each other? Couldn't it have worked out? And I was like, no, it couldn't have because you wouldn't have changed. <laughs> and then in, even in the last line of the text, he says, no, seriously, when they take her away tomorrow, what will become of me? It's like, are you not worried about her soul or uh, are you not? Do you not think about anyone but yourself? Apparently not. No, it's a it's a fine point at the end of the story that it ends on him. It begins with her and ends on him (laughs) in a a very real way. Yeah, it's uh, it's an intense story, but I think, you know, it takes a lot of the themes and questions that Dostoevsky is dealing with in a lot of his larger novels, and it kind of condenses them into this really neat and economical story where it all kind of comes flooding out. It's so dense. I mean, I can't even get into all of it, that everything that's going on in, you know, the time that we have, but it's... And he's like, I worried her to death. That's what it is. Like, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. 
Yeah. <laughs> and the handful of blood, they say it was from internal injury, which I also find very interesting because like, it was like her heart. Mm-hmm. It's like her soul. Mm. That was what was broken. Cause he says nothing was crushed. Nothing was broken, but maybe her spirit was crushed. Maybe her heart was indeed broken. That was the internal injury, not necessarily like the physical one that ultimately would have killed her, but that's what drove her there. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a fine place to leave it in terms of thematic conclusion on the themes. Yes. <laughs> well, um, oh boy, what a what a place to leave it. Um, what a place. What a place. Yeah. So as we wrap up, Caitlin, I have to ask you, um, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? Honestly, I feel like Putin sober right now. I'm <laughs> I'm not doing the tipsy Tolstoy proud. <laughs> no, that's all right. I I will be honest. Exactly the same. I, I've been enjoying uh, Darren. Your your beard, the dark side on excellent. Um, un- unfortunately, the sober the story itself is sobering enough that it does counteract all the alcohol in this. But mm-hmm. it was an excellent drink along the way. Matt, how about you? Uh, about the same. I th- I think we should do a fun episode together because I feel like. You know the really depressing ones. <laughs> you, you can't get up there on the on the, on the drunk scale. You really can't. It does get a little difficult. Does Dostoevsky have any fun ones? No, it would have uh, to be a non-Dostoevsky. <laughs> probably. It would definitely have. To. We should do Vera Pavlovna's Fourth Dream from Chernyshevsky and just like shit on him the whole time. Oh, I'm so That's down fun. for that. That's great. I love that idea. As, as long as we don't have to read all of what is to be done. Yeah, definitely. No, we're not doing that. Refuse. <laughs> we, did, we did it once. We're never going back. Yeah, no, one time is enough. Yeah, it indelibly marked my soul for the worse. Uh. <laughs> As it did Dostoevsky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, um, Matt, <laughs> Matt, what are we, um, speaking of other things to cover, what are we reading in our next episode? <laughs> Well, next episode, we're going to be reading The Funeral Party by Ludmila Ulitskaya. It's going to be fun. Cameron assures me it's going to be weird, too. So stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, that's what I go for. Well, um, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us again. This has been a wonderful time. I have learned a lot in this this last uh, 50 minutes, actually 60 minutes or so now. And I think you've kind of brought me around to making me really, really appreciate. I, I liked the short story before, but I can now understand why you, why you said it was one of your favorites. I can I can definitely appreciate that. I like it a lot. I like it a lot more, and I liked it before. Awesome. I'm so glad, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Of course. We're always happy to have you on. You you bring a nice <laughs> uh, a, a nice uh, intellectualism, which we don't normally have. <laughs> 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 and then also people will get off our backs about, like, when are you going to read more Dostoevsky? Um Whenever Dr. Shirley is free. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> Yes. So check out Dostoevsky or Doesn't She on all the social media that they are on. They will be on in all in in the description of this episode. Yes. Also, look at the book club if you're interested at reading some of the longer Dostoevsky novels or in this case in the fall, some short stories. Uh, We don't do a ton of Dostoevsky here, so go there. It'll be more rewarding. (laughs) Um, And before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We have Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Branton, Allison, Gary, Cole, Daniel, Jack, Lucy, Alex, (gasps) and Roland. (laughs) Podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. 
The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.